The Jonathan Cruz case was hastily investigated by authorities, but many questions remain. Come behind the curtain with private investigator Sheila Wysocki as she uncovers the truth about what happened to Jonathan. This is Without Warning. In this episode, we are going to focus on one of the most critical moments in any trial, the opening statement. The opening statement is where attorneys have the first opportunity to captivate the jury, set the stage for the case, and outline their arguments. You will hear Tom Shaw while he reads his opening statement. Danielle will read Andrew G.'s opening statement for Brenda Lazaro Kelly. Join me and listen to the inner workings of the judicial system. Here is Tom Shaw and myself talking about opening statements. The uh, the reason that uh, the opening statement is important is that what I like to do is I like to give a roadmap of where we're going because a jury really doesn't know how a lawsuit um, works out. All they know is they get evidence, they give a verdict. Um, Sometimes they don't even know that. So what I like to do is I like to give them an idea of what's coming up, try to summarize to the extent I want to give out information at that point, uh, what I think the evidence will show and then um, uh, make no arguments because typically um, juries don't, I I haven't earned the right to make an argument yet because I haven't uh, presented any evidence. And typically um, people have a, a, a negative impression of plaintiff's lawyers. So until I, um, do something or present evidence and not tell them what to believe, but let the evidence show them the obvious. Um, And people don't like to be told what to think. So I try to avoid telling them what to think. Um, Oftentimes the uh, cases aren't about facts because most of the facts are, are this, are, you know, both sides agree on them. It's putting the facts together and drawing inferences from them. That is the difference between the two cases, the, the plaintiff's case and the defense case. What's the most important component of talking to a jury? Well, to me, it's credibility and um, believability. And if you're arguing before you've presented anything, then you're setting yourself up for jurors not to believe you. And you really don't want to do that before you've presented any evidence. You want to tell them what the case is about, tell them what you think uh, they're going to hear, and then uh, say um, nothing more and sit down. As an attorney, do you look at the jury to see if you're connecting with them or do you just present it and move on? How does it work? It depends. Um, If 
you, you try to you try to read jurors and try to determine do they want to be looked at because some people get nervous when you um, when you connect eyes with them they don't feel comfortable and I don't I don't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable so I'll I'll try to avoid that particular juror until um, I think they're ready for me to lock eyes with them, for example, perhaps in final argument. We're here because a mother and a father had their firstborn son taken from them. Pam and John Cruz's son, Jonathan, was killed by a gunshot fired in his own apartment. The bullet entered his body There was only one other person in the apartment at the time of his death. His parents come here because their only hope of the world finally learning the truth of what happened to their son is you, the jury. You may wonder where were the police? Where was the district attorney, the grand jury? How is it possible charges were never brought? Pam and John have spent years desperate to know. The criminal justice system has failed Jonathan, Pam, and John. We're here because these parents want the story of Jonathan's life and death to be his true story, not the ones that were invented, kept changing with every retelling by Brenda Lazaro. In court, like this when there's no sending the wrong juror to prison. Because we're in a civil court rather than a criminal court, you're being asked to measure the value in the only form available in this kind of civil courtroom deciding a wrongful death case of what has been taken away from John and Pam. In the old days, we took an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Then many of us were taught instead to turn the other cheek. But neither allowed the community to speak to the loss, to express the conscience of the community as to what this loss actually means. The killing of one's child. Never hearing the truth heard or honored. In this court, you'll be asked to place a dollar figure on what has been taken away. Well, what good will money do? It's going to measure the size of what it is meant first for one's child to be killed and then to struggle as his parents did when no one in the legal system is willing to say this death is wrongful. Obviously, no calculator except your hearts and minds, your values can achieve this task. The task of bringing justice. There is an aspect of this civil trial that eases the burden on you of determining what happened. Burden of proof is what we must show in order to earn a verdict from you. In a civil trial, the burden of proof is different from that in a criminal trial. In a criminal court, the burden of proof is beyond a reasonable doubt. But here, in this court, your decision is made based on the standard of more likely than not. That is, More likely than not, Brenda Lazaro is responsible for Jonathan's death. Unlike a criminal court in civil cases like this one, creating doubt 
does not get you out. There's overwhelming evidence that will show what happened in the apartment where Jonathan's life ended. After you've heard all of the evidence, you will be able to do what a criminal jury never had a chance to do, to bring justice to Jonathan's life, to bring justice to those from whom he was taken, and justice for the one responsible for his death. So who were these two young people, Jonathan Cruz and uh, Brenda Lazaro? One of them's here, Jonathan's not. But you'll get to know Jonathan through those who loved him, his family and friends. Until now, Brenda has not answered so many questions, but here in this courtroom, through the testimony of people who know her, through her text messages, through her recorded statements, you'll know her. On the day Jonathan died, he was a 27-year-old oldest of Pam and John Cruz's three children. He has a younger brother, Christian, and a baby sister, Danny. He's a graduate of Baylor University and the newly promoted operations manager, director of Concentra's urgent care facility in Garland. He's moved out into his very first solo apartment. Jonathan Cruz is excited about his new apartment, about his new job. You're gonna hear from everyone about the gracious generosity of this young man's temperament. He has two members of his inner circle, Jacob and Emily, whom he introduced and who became a couple. You'll meet them. They were absorbed into the Cruz's family and became part of this extended family. When the three amigos get together, they always hug each other hello. They remember their first meeting with Brenda Lazaro. She will not speak to them. She will not speak to Jonathan. Literally, she refused to speak to them. It was that hug hello that Jonathan gave Jacob and Emily. No, she was fine with the hug to Jacob, but not the one for Emily. You'll learn of Brenda's history of obsessive jealousy, the self-cutting, the rages, the vicious texts. They watch Jonathan spend the entire two months, he and Brenda are together, appeasing, apologizing, trying to earn her trust. But it never lasts. You'll see hundreds of accusatory texts, threatening texts, blaming texts, about everything from gifts she discovers she gave to a, that Jonathan gave to a former girlfriend, texts originating from Jonathan's phone that Brenda, not Jonathan, sends posing as Jonathan telling a former girlfriend to stay away from him, texts telling him she was pregnant when she was not, texts demanding that he choose between herself and Emily knowing that he has never once been alone with Emily since he began dating Brenda. Finally, the day before Jonathan dies, he texts his sister that he knows he has to end his relationship with Brenda. The next day, he and Jacob are going to brunch. When Brenda learns that Jacob has brought Emily with him, the bombardment of texts are unleashed again all over again. 
Here's what appears on the cell phone of Jonathan that Jonathan has with him at the table. I need that fucking bitch's number. Jonathan won't do that. His phone is ringing and ringing. It's Brenda. Finally, he answers the phone and Brenda demands to speak to Emily. Jonathan doesn't want to give the phone to Emily, but eventually Emily gestures to Jonathan, it's okay, and to give her the phone. Emily will tell you that Brenda is screaming at her, you leave my man alone. Jacob and Emily offer that if their friendship is any obstacle to Jonathan's happiness with Brenda, they will remove themselves. Jonathan refuses that this is not even an option. After this brunch, Emily and Jacob will take Jonathan back to his apartment. Jonathan will never leave that apartment alive. Jonathan Cruz is a gun owner and the instructor of gun safety to all his friends and a stickler for the proper and safe use of firearms. Jonathan was trained by a professional firearms expert when he was nine. Brenda will tell you, one of her friends that Jonathan died of a gunshot wound because he was playing with his gun. She tells another friend that Jonathan had gunpowder residue on his hands and she did not. You'll learn that the reverse is true. She tells yet another friend that Jonathan shot himself in the head, another that he shot himself in the heart to show her how much he loved her is what she says. The bullet enters the back of his hip. She tells one person that when she hears the shot, she's at the foot of a bed. She tells another that she is in the bathroom. She tells yet another she's in the living room. In her call to 911, she first says he shot himself accidentally. Then she says, no, 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 it was intentional. The Dallas County Medical Examiner will not certify that this is a suicide. The bullet enters his body through the left flank, ripping through part of his heart, exits back and travels to the mattress, box rings, and then finally lodges in the bed frame. For right-handed person, which Jonathan is, to fire his Sig Sauer firearm from this position, reaching all the way across his body and point the firearm to result in a shot with the known trajectory is a feat that the ballistics expert will testify that he's never come across in his 38 years of experience. Brenda Lazaro will tell some people that Jonathan is depressed and takes medication for his depression. No one else has ever heard of Jonathan being depressed and no prescription for anti-depression medication has ever been written for him. Jonathan's cell phone will be discovered smashed and hidden under his mattress. All of Brenda Lazaro's texts that you will be able to see were recovered from his cell phone, not hers. She claims hers died in the toilet and she had no chance to pull it out. It's been said that the truth never changes, but lies never stay the same. You'll meet Brenda's former boyfriend, Matthew Kirk. He describes Brenda as so jealous of any woman he talks to, she threatens his mother. She threatens to hurt herself when she visits 
when Matthew visits his brother's wife in the hospital after she's just given birth to his niece. Matthew Kirk describes how twice while they were dating, Brenda Lazaro attempted suicide. Less than 12 hours after Jonathan was shot, Brenda Lazaro will visit Matthew. He hasn't seen her for years. She corners him and relentlessly demands if he will do anything she asks him to do. You will hear all that she wants is for her to leave, but she will not. He finally relents. What is it that you want? Kill me. He refuses. After you've heard all of the evidence, including a scientific recreation showing the last moments of Jonathan's life, it will prove to you that the bullet wound that killed Jonathan Cruz could not have been self-inflicted. You are the only persons who can bring peace to this family. Who can tell Brenda Lazaro? The evidence, the truth speaks louder than any lie. The truth of what happened in that apartment will not be buried with the life she took. No, it cannot be replaced, but it can be honored and acknowledged. Its value measured and honored the only way our system allows. The value is what Brenda Lazaro wrongfully took away from John and Pam. And that value is measured by the only means available to you in a civil court. At the end of this case, you will be asked to acknowledge the value of what was taken away from them is in hundreds of millions of dollars. I'm gonna have Danielle read Andrew G's portion of the opening. Andrew G is the defendant, Brenda Lazaro Kelly's attorney. May it please the court, counsel, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Good morning. My name is Andrew G. And along with my team, we're here and privileged to represent Brenda Kelly. Ms. Kelly is here with her husband and her in-laws. And we certainly understand that we've all gathered here today under very difficult circumstances. But all of us that are participating in this trial have taken an oath or will take an oath. Counsel for the plaintiff has taken an oath. I've taken an oath. The judge has taken an oath. The reporter, bailiff, you, any witnesses. And we all have our duty to do, and this is all we do. But I believe the judge will instruct you to not let bias, sympathy, or prejudice play any role in the decisions that you make here today. We've heard that everybody wants justice. I guess the question is, what does justice look like? We've heard from the plaintiffs that that's tens of millions of dollars. Brenda is going to ask for something a little bit different and probably harder for you to give. And that is for you to look at the actual evidence in a logical, dispassionate, careful manner and determine if something happened, not how much they get paid. The real question here first is if, did something happen? That is your duty. We've heard that the evidence is, and I think the demonstration perhaps was a little inaccurate, but essentially the allegations and the evidence will be that Jonathan Cruz was shot through the heart with a nine millimeter pistol. That round hit his lung and his liver, fatal injuries clearly. The issue for you to decide though is, 
is that gunshot wound self-inflicted or is it something else? And you'll hear a little bit, I expect, about cause of death, homicidal, suicidal, accidental, or undetermined. In order for the plaintiffs to prevail, they need to show that it's homicidal or an intentional act by the defendant. If it's suicidal or accidental or undetermined, I expect the judge will instruct you that that doesn't meet the burden of proof. So what is the cause of death? What evidence do we not expect to hear today and tomorrow? I don't expect we'll hear any evidence from that witness chair from a single person that was there that night who was from law enforcement, medical examiner, crime scene investigator, anybody that participated in the investigation or incident in any way. I do expect you'll hear by a video deposition from a neighbor who was asleep, said, I heard a gunshot at 11 o'clock and then heard a knock on my door some 30 to 35 minutes later. So really, I don't think we'll hear any firsthand information. You won't hear from Brenda directly from that witness chair either. She's either invoked in discovery, and I expect you'll see that in evidence, her Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. You also won't see any evidence that Brenda was ever arrested, charged, prosecuted, or convicted. I'm not sure that you'll see any evidence that indicates there's an ongoing police investigation. You will, however, I expect, see certain documents that were created by the police and the medical examiner's office at or near the time of the events and in the months afterwards that contain certain facts about what people did, what people said, perhaps what people thought, perhaps what the findings were, and you'll be able to look at those. Those materials will include what Brenda said and did the day of this accident. September 2nd, 2014. Let me be clear, as Danielle's speaking right now, Andrew G. said September 2nd, 2014. We are reading this from the court transcript. Continuing on with Andrew G.'s. I expect you'll hear counsel indicate that you'll hear a recorded statement. I believe that's going to be a 911 call that Brenda placed on February 2nd, 2014, in which she describes what happened and asks for help. When you hear that, I want you to think of three things. RCC. RCC. What happens on that call? RCC. Request for help. Concern and cooperation. She calls, RCC, renders aid. That's what you'll hear, pressing on, rendering aid. Number two, calling for help. She's calling for help. Help me, tell me what to do, I need some help. And then cooperation. She follows through with what the 911 operators do and ask her to do. And then I believe the evidence will show that she cooperates with the police, visits with the police officers that day, later that night at the station. And a period of time later, she answers questions from the police. I don't think there's going to be any evidence we see that says Brenda never cooperated with the police. That Brenda took the fifth. You'll see something about that. That's only after this lawsuit for tens of millions of dollars was filed. You're going to hear a lot of speculation, a lot of conjecture about what people think happened. You're going to hear all these collateral witnesses, ex-boyfriends that really don't like her, 
that are going to come forth and say she's crazy, she's jealous, she's a bad person. And the conclusion there is, well, she must have done it because she's jealous. That's up for you to decide. Y'all have life experience. Did somebody kill somebody because they're having lunch with someone that they're not romantically involved in with? Probably not. Is that what really happened? Was she really a jealous person? I'm not sure that the evidence is going to show that. I think they're going to argue that that was a faked motive that she used for a crime that she was planning to occur, but we'll let the evidence see that. Okay, in terms of changing the story, this is really important. Has anybody ever told somebody something different and repeated that to multiple people? Of course, we all have, right? Whatever it may be. You go and talk to all these people. Are they all going to say the same thing that you said? Probably not. What about two years later? Probably less likely. What if one of those people is your ex-boyfriend that just doesn't like you who said, this person almost ruined my life? Is that going to be an objective witness? That's up for you to decide. What's more important? A bunch of civilian witnesses that come in years later and say, Brenda told me different things, or are you going to see evidence of a changed story on what she told to the police? What's more important? I expect you'll also hear some opinion testimony, other opinion testimony from consultants that have been hired and paid for by the plaintiffs. These are not the Capella police officers. They're not Dallas County employees. These are going to be consultants that were hired to give an opinion. You'll hear from them. And you're going to have access to virtually the same materials that they had a chance to review. You'll get to form your own opinion about what happened that night and see if in fact the evidence substantiates as we heard a murder. Because at the end of the day, only one opinion really matters and that's the six of you who are chosen on this jury. We're going to hear a lot about motive, means, and opportunity. Well, two people in an apartment, certainly opportunity for both. We're going to hear about means. There's a firearm equally accessible to both. What about the motive? Well, we hear the allegation that it was jealousy. Perhaps he is going to break up with her. We don't really know. So that must be the motive. Okay, what if it was an accident? Do you have to have a motive for an accident? I mean, oftentimes an accident is an accident. There isn't always a motive for an accident because if there were, it wouldn't be an accident. None of the hard forensics in our view will point to the fact that it was something other than a self-inflicted gunshot. And I think the records that will come into the court from the Dallas County Medical Examiner will show that it was undetermined. That's because it's hard to tell. Accident, suicide, or something else. Could it be a murder? I suppose it could be, but the medical examiner's office hasn't said that. They haven't said it was suicide. They haven't said it was an accident. They said they can't tell. Those are people with access to all the information and they said, we don't know. I'm not sure that we're going to hear any evidence that's going to push you over the top to say that it's a murder. The defense will cross-examine the witnesses that are brought forth by the plaintiffs, and we're going to ask them to see if their theories really make sense. We're going to test those. I think one of the things you're going to hear is the timeline. 
that timeline will be that the time of the shot was around 11 o'clock. If that's true, you know, can you actually believe that witness? Because that's what their case is based on. And that witness will be somebody that was asleep and that was woken up and then went back to sleep and reported the time. It's not going to be very clear. How strong is that testimony? We don't think that that's going to be very strong because we don't think that you can pick and be shown that there was a homicide. We're going to ask you to return a defense verdict of the plaintiffs take nothing. Thank you very much. Danielle, while Andrew G. was doing his opening statement, he got the date of the incident incorrect. Brenda's own attorney could not get the date of the incident correct. Right. And I was taking that right from the court transcript and read it exactly how Andrew G. said it in the court. After hearing both opening statements, I wanted to know from Tom Shaw's perspective as an attorney what he thought about Andrew G., the defense's side of the argument or opening. From the defense perspective, what are you trying to show the jury? Um, You've got to try to explain to the jury why it is you're not going to hear from Brenda Lazaro, probably the first thing. He does that. He doesn't. He Andrew's a pretty good lawyer, but I, I'm not sure that he went over that enough in Bordier to have inoculated the jury to, uh, you know, the concept that his client isn't going to speak. The other thing, maybe he might want to might have wanted to do is just stipulate that she's going to take the fifth to every question. We don't have to ask any questions. I would have done, tried to do that. Um, he also wants to try to to try very hard to make this about dollars. The the cruises are only in this for the dollars, and that um, and that was the guy that worked with me on my opening, uh, Josh Carton, was very clever about the way he suggested this because he he said there basically there are two things that we want the jury to do. One is acknowledge Jonathan's death was not the result of a suicide and not the result of an accident. But you're not done. Because second, you've got to acknowledge the value of Jonathan's life. And you can only do that with the only you know way that a jury can do it. And that is tell the Cruises what their son was worth. So we kind of shifted the dollars around to not make it about them making any money. And I think they knew that the Brenda Lazaro had no money. So what they were playing with was monopoly money in essence. But it had the psychological effect of telling the the cruises that their kid was a good guy. Mm-hmm. And that Brendel Zaro took a lot away from them by gave, killing him. Gave him value. That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. And that, I thought that was very clever by Josh. And um, I thought we played that theme throughout the the whole case. The starting in Vordire, going into opening statement, going into the testimony, and then final argument. 
the obstacle of her not testifying is astronomical. Yeah, because it, it's entirely possible that right away the jury concluded because she was taking the fifth that she did it. Uh, but Andrew G plays with the hand that's dealt him because he says, you know, Brenda was never arrested, charged, prosecuted, or or convicted. Therefore, your job's done. The cops haven't done anything. The DA's office hasn't done anything. So there must not be a big, big deal there. Um, he's, he initially suggests the wound was self-inflicted, but then he goes back kind of in, and covers himself by saying, well, there really is no evidence of why or how he died. Um, he said, you know, he, he plays the, the ME's undetermined as, well, we just can't figure it out. We don't know whether it's suicide. We don't know whether it's, we don't know whether it's murder. He does that. He, he never explains why, but he, but he, he does in final argument, um, about why the 911 call is positive for him. The 911 call is really depends on which side you're on. You could argue that something in that is positive for Brenda, but most of it in my mind was was either neutral or or went against her. I mean, she was she was hysterical, but then she got real calm and you know, she wasn't sure where he lived, even though she supposedly picked it out with him. Anyway, she, that, that's an unusual uh, use of the 911 call, in my mind. Um, he he said he didn't think the evidence would show that she was jealous. And there was, there was nothing but evidence of her jealousy. I mean, from her own texts, from her own mouth. You know, it was, it was, uh, and then the, I thought one of the weaker arguments was when he said, well, the changing stories, you played post office before. He doesn't call it post office, but the game of post office where you tell something to the person next to you and then the person next to you tells someone else. And it all came from the same source. So it's not like the game of post office. Mm -hmm. It's not passing it to person to passes it to a person who passes it to a person. You know, th that that's just not the case. He says that she doesn't have any any motive. And, you know, we we gave the motive. I mean, jealousy, it's the oldest motive in the book. Um, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then he kind of goes to the timeline and, and claims that the timeline really doesn't add up. And the timeline's not what we're worried about. The timeline is is a red herring in my mind. It was a fairly short argument. It didn't have a whole lot of substance, but he was he he did the best he could with the hand he was dealt. All the investigation pointed to homicide. Correct. In every case, there is someone in the community who holds information that may be significant in solving a case. Relationships change over time, and many cold cases are solved when a former witness 
friend or relative is located who is tired of hiding information and shares that information with investigators. If you have any information about this case, please contact our voicemail comment line at 888-599-0008. You can leave an anonymous tip or you can leave your contact information. We will call you back and speak with you directly. You can also email information to Sheila at SheilaWysocki.com. Without warning, executive director, executive producer, and host Sheila Wysocki. Announcer, Tim Evans. <laughs>